Imagine that one day you're just sitting on a bench downtown minding your own business. Tech bros in suits and sneakers are walking by, talking about crypto into their AirPods. A few people are casually walking their dogs while a queue 20 deep are waiting for their venti soy lattes at the latest pop-up coffee shop. It's a nice day out, not too overcast. A nice spring day in the year of our Lord 2018. You scroll through your phone to press play on the Joe Rogan podcast you downloaded last night so you can hear him talk about life philosophy with a man who eats nothing but beets and gravel. All of a sudden you hear the jingling of a dog collar nearby. A small little purse dog, a chihuahua doodle or something sits in front of you and whines. Looking up for the owner, you see nobody. The line for the coffee is half gone too and people are losing their shit. You see a man start to melt in front of your eyes and you start to hyperventilate, coming back to your senses in just enough time to hear the roar of an engine approaching your park bench. Diving out of the way with seconds to spare, a champagne Toyota Camry without a driver just bonks right into the bench you were sitting on. Welcome to the 50% of the human race who didn't get Thanos. Welcome to the Grimdark Battle Station. Welcome to Grim Dark Battle Station, the show that takes a real-world look at fictional conflicts and vehemently argues that Ant-Man butt expansion is a viable military tactic. In our first Marvel episode, we're going to be talking about what is without doubt the largest event currently produced in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We are talking, of course, about the snap. The event, or the time Thanos killed half of all life in the universe, like a first-year undergrad ecology student on meth. Like all other franchises, a bit of lore housekeeping is always needed. Given that the MCU stems from a comic book medium, it's without question and impossible task to keep the lore consistent, and to keep it comprehensive, and to have an all-encompassing view of things. Hell, Marvel and DC have retcons as part of their business models. What they have done, however, is created a pretty solid story arc through the Avengers and Avengers-adjacent movies and TV shows. So for the purpose of anything to do with these arcs, we're going to take the movies and the TV series as, as canon and uh, disregard any specific overwhelming comic plot lines. While more coherent than the Star Wars arcs, the Marvel arc, or the Avengers arc, is also more fantastical and based on a hell of a lot of background and exposition. In fact, it's gotten so big that they're just throwing crap at the wall and making billions. I'm looking at you, Multiverse of Madness. So for the purpose of our on-lore caveats for this episode, everything in the movies has to be taken at face value, and only two core facts that are alluded to in the movies and the TV shows are being presented as our logical jumping-off point. Number one that the snap occurred in our current world order, and number two, that it removed 42.5% of the human population. Everything else is fairly ancillary, as with these two points alone, you can relatively confidently predict the colossal shit show that was going to occur about immediately after the snap, and immediately after return of all the blippers. First though, let's take a minute to recognise that the world that the blip occurred in, the real world, is not the PG-13 Disney Corp idea of the real world. 
the surface world order. The one theme that shines through about political orders in every Marvel movie and the entire Avengers arc is the fact that politicians are literally the same manner of creep in a Thor-filled world as they are in our reality. There is no unified, utopian vision of politics. It's just 2018 with spandex. Why is this relevant? It's simple. In order to be perfectly balanced, as all things should be, Thanos' snap is going to have to apply a highly complex logic to an already imbalanced system. The Earth that he split in half had a whole host of issues already affecting it, and not in the proportion to the amount of life forms spread planet-wide. For one thing, nation-states still exist in this reality. That means that politically life forms have already been categorised. Economic inequality still exists globally, which means that economically life forms have already been categorised. Demography and ethnographic issues still exist, alongside unequal resource usage, meaning from a utility and scarcity point of view, people have already been categorised. There are people living under democracies as well as despotic regimes, people in environmental bliss, and those choking in the smog of destructive industrial hellscapes. All of these different contextual factors interact to create the current global system. They are all interdependent and fragile. Suez Canal cargo ship ring a bell? How about Chernobyl? What was snapped could not in any way, shape or form have been snapped equally or randomly. It had to have a twisted logic to achieve the desired result. Sheer randomness would have led to complete collapse and planet-wide extinction. So what would this logic have had to be and what effect would it have had in our universe and the tangentially related Avengers universe? The Logic of the Stones Now obviously the Infinity Gauntlet is a tool of immense power and it likely is not something that will engage in malicious compliance. Certainly it wouldn't pull a Thanos and just line people up side by side and kill half of them. The gauntlet gave Thanos exactly what he wanted. A biologically sustainable reduction of life by half. Meaning a functional reduction of less than half. I think it's in Avengers Endgame where the stats say it was 42.5% of all life on Earth was snapped out of existence. Why was it this percentage though? Well, let's take one example. An airplane. Through sheer random chance, at least one of the 8,000 odd commercial jets in the sky would lose both a pilot and a co-pilot. And at least one of these planes would hit some form of population centre. You have now possibly snapped two lives that actually snapped a thousand. In a related instant, we see Nick Fury and Maria Hill disintegrate in the same car after having a non-fatal crash. As a result, similar things can be said about cars, which did crash in the movies. You're going to have more and more people die. There is no way through random chance that you can get a perfect 50%, and it is highly likely that you'll be way over rather than way under. Even randomly removing 50% of the plankton in a certain stretch of water could snowball into causing a mass extinction event. That's why the percentage is under 50. It has to be. It has to have a logic. For all of you programmers or Excel nerds out there, it was the world's biggest if-then statement. Near infinite permutations to ensure a faithful execution of Thanos' wish. 
everything had to disappear proportionally in such a way that the world was effectively halved and lost only the function of labour contributed by the missing people. No fields in Scotland suddenly had zero sheep. No container ship in Singapore lost its entire crew. Wherever there were two people that contributed the same, one disappeared. Wherever there was only one person or too many unintended downstream effects, nobody disappeared. The guy carrying the nuclear football for the US president sure as shit survived because if he just vanished into thin air, that's Nuketown. The snap had to be a logical snap. So is this how the Avengers arc portrayed this event and the downstream consequences? What happened? The snap era lasted about five years from 2018 to 2023. While good info on what exactly happened in that period isn't available, because it doesn't contribute to any current stories in a meaningful or entertaining way, there were a lot of hints in, in Avengers movies and the Falcon and the Winter Soldier TV series. We are told that there was a general societal collapse worldwide. We see different countries missing tolls increasing at a rapid rate, the United States declared a state of emergency, organised crime flourished, and about 500 million children were orphaned. After the initial chaos, we are told that the national boundaries are functionally eroded and mass migrations of people occur. It is hinted that this is a mass migration from the quote-unquote global south, i.e. the poorer areas of the globe, to industrialised countries or the global north. This appears to have effectively created a global cultural union that sat on top of pre-existing political structures. In the Falcon Winter Soldier, we're told that this meant disintegrating borders, but maintaining national government activities alongside global cooperation efforts. Probably makes more sense to say that the entire planet created a free movement zone similar to one that they have in the European Union. This allows EU citizens to move all around the 27 member states freely, while allowing each one to keep control of law enforcement, taxation, etc. It also allows deportation and exclusion to occur as well. On the global security side, we know that after the blip and the return of everybody, quite quickly the Global Resettlement Council of Narcs is formed to remove the earlier migrants from their homes of five years. Given that it was pretty heavily militarized and well-funded, we can assume that at a global level, there was already some form of structure prior to 2023. Probably a Team America World Police type operation. Overall, what the Avengers arc says happened was every QAnon nutbar's worst nightmare. A multicultural, multi-ethnic global community where borders were functionally meaningless. Sounds like the majority of those left behind ended up with better lives from a material circumstance perspective. A situation that would definitely last after everyone else was blipped back into existence, right? Right? What happened after? It's been documented for quite some time that human beings are altruistic by nature, until their security is threatened, and proactive by nature, until worn down by systems of power or bureaucracy. After the utopian snap era came the blip. The return of all previously disappeared people to planet Earth and the return of the natural order of environmental collapse and economic exploitation. Shocking absolutely nobody, 
The people who returned and found strangers living in their homes or occupying their jobs wanted those people gone. Indeed, it would seem that within a period of months, the global security architecture was already rounding people up and forcing them into quote-unquote refugee camps of varying degrees of horridness. Anger, exploitation and disease were in ready supply as the developed countries of the world sought to pretend the last five years had never occurred and attempted to scoot all the undesirables back across the re-solidified borders. Again, surprising no one, this created a global, global terrorist network known as the Flag Smashers to combat the GRC Gestapo of the World Security Council. Because let's call a spade a spade here, this isn't a liberal overreaction to call this Nazi tier behaviour. Aided and abetted, for a not insignificant amount of time, by Captain America, the Falcon, the Winter Soldier, and a whole host of other quote-unquote good guys. In response to this, the Flag Smashers carried out a series of terror attacks to stop the passage of the Hatch Act, which although vague appears to be an international treaty of forced resettlement, not dissimilar to that signed between the United Kingdom government and Rwanda in 2022. Ironically enough, this series of terror attacks pretty much worked, with the added seasoning of an impassioned monologue from the Avengers B-Team. The ambiguous ending showed that the world powers were going to come up with a more compassionate response than putting people into concentration camps and pretending that the last five years hadn't happened. Warm fuzzy feelings not quite, but a relevant political message told in an albeit ham-fisted PG-13 way. But is this how the global order would react to such a crisis before and after? At the start, would Thanos have really brought about an era of kombucha and free movement? Not a hope. Global politics during crisis situations. There are a lot of competing theories about the political behaviour of humans, from jaded might-makes-right realists to borders-are-an-illusion contrarians. And if any of you listening are scientists, real scientists, you will immediately understand when I say that political science isn't real science, in that it can't carry out rigorous experimentation. So when talking about conflict in the abstract, it's always about assumptions and trains of logic. You assume that a soldier knows how to fire a rifle, so in a fantasy setting you logically conclude that a soldier could kill a zombie from 100 yards without breaking a sweat. In the same way, you assume that the collective of a government wants to protect the lives and livelihoods, and indeed resources, of a country. I know this is a big stretch, but humour me. We know that humans react to stressful situations in both individualist and collectivist ways. Societal collapse is not a prepper's wet dream of every man for himself, Daryl Dixon-style nonsense. In the same way, we know that if something like a global pandemic were to hit, countries will primarily look after their own first by closing borders, hoarding medicines, etc. etc. We waste a hell of a lot of ink and tweets talking about how society is on the verge of collapse or how the United States is like the Roman Empire before it fell. What we don't spend enough time looking at is the functional aspects of a collapse. Did Syria collapse during the Syrian civil war? Yes. Did people have food, water and electricity? Yes. Did people band together in collective action and also get brutalized by other groups? Also, yes. A post-snap world is unlikely to react very differently to global events than it would have the year before. Existing power structures built on solid foundations do not just dissolve. Bear in mind that 
the West has a vested interest in cooperation and mutual security to ensure their economic dominance. Russia seemed to have been carving apart European unity for 20 years, and now they are on the path to a fundamental collapse. A crisis that arguably strengthened instead of led to collapse. The internal snap. So, all of a sudden, our logical snap occurs. Chaos reigns. There's looting on the streets. Repression and general panic start to take hold. Within 24 hours, cities and towns all over the world are burning and small villages are likely isolated and devoid of essential services. Within a week, though, some form of order would be restored via the imposition of martial law. In normal civil disturbance situation, rioters can get injured or killed by police, National Guard or army troops. In a civil collapse scenario like the snap, it would be like Hurricane Katrina on steroids. Anybody out after dark would likely be shot by the armed forces of even the most liberal democracy. Don't even get me started on countries like North Korea or Iran. The key goal for security forces on that day, on that week, on that month, will be the same as it always is. The restoration and maintenance of order to centres of power first and foremost. Protecting the economic, political, military and logistical areas that keep a country moving. In the United States, for example, the key ports and air force bases would be first. Likely the armed forces will secure and hold all of their bases and their most relevant local centres of power. Bear in mind that theoretically all of the infrastructure remains intact, and it's unlikely that any Chernobyl situation is occurring anywhere. Power generation and water would probably be the next most important, followed by food and medicine. Within a matter of weeks, a military presence will have been felt in almost every settlement worldwide, especially with the activation of reserves and the expansion of recruitment. Another good point to make is that militaries aren't going to get small during this period. Yes, theoretically your army is going to lose half of its troops, but you are going to very quickly have a lot of volunteers to help restore order and be able to activate a lot of reservists. So then internally, a brief period of chaos that's followed by the imposition of some form of military government. And what about externally? The external snap. Now make absolutely no mistake, within the first 24 hours of the snap, global borders will be incredibly porous and lightly guarded. People, drugs, weapons, anything that could slip right through, will indeed slip right through. Except of course for the fact that 50% of the people doing that and buying those drugs have also disappeared. Once some form of command and control is asserted however, borders will be violently sealed and kept shut for a long, long time. This is one of the main issues with the MCU snap. Without any other context, we are told that national borders are dissolved and a wave of mass migrations occur to fill jobs and homes left behind by those that were taken. This is at best an elementary school understanding of the global economy and security architecture. It treats jobs like an abstract concept and global inequality as a matter of immigration policy. It is, if you'll excuse the trope, a very Hollywood liberal way to understand the world. The economy. I think it's safe to state that immigration is an economic necessity in most modern countries. The social benefits are tangential though, and not really a 
needed thing for a society to try. So then the reason for mass migration to occur in the MCU is 90% economic and 10% a salve for the social distress caused by half of everybody disappearing. The global economy has likely suffered a colossal hit. Given the psychology of markets, it's likely that we've seen the worst market crash in human history. However, it's worth noting that technically we now have twice the amount of capital per person that we did the day before. The same goes for resources like oil, gold, and even the stock of brand new cars. You know what didn't double though? Demand. Because there's now half as many people around the world to produce and buy stuff, and this is where the MCU gets it fundamentally wrong. If we lost 50% of our firefighters overnight, we would indeed need more firefighters, because the risk they manage is not entirely human. We would not, however, need the exact same number as we needed before. We don't need a farm in Iowa to produce 150 tons of corn, or feed, because the cattle herds are now half the size. We don't need Amazon delivery drivers because the amount of prime orders is going to be reduced by up to half. Anything that is a primary commodity, or is part of the disposable consumer economy, is not going to be in high demand. Huge stockpiles of inorganic resources and products now magically exist. In Toronto, there are now enough houses for everybody. In California, there is suddenly enough water for both Kim Kardashian, the farmers, and the normal people. But for economic reasons, countries are going to implement open borders. Jobs aren't abstract. The economic system isn't either. The industrialized countries are going to keep border controls in place while hoarding their ever bigger share of global wealth and inorganic resources. After six months to a year, they will start their real migration program, the intentional and controlled brain drain of poorer countries. So let's take an example of smart TVs. 250 million are sold every year, with very little lead time. This assumes that the global stock of smart TVs is over 300 million annually, or for the sake of argument, let's just say 1 million are produced or are available every day of the year. On the day the snap happens, there is likely to be an immediate surplus of over one year on the market. Pretty much the same with cars, and the same with housing. China won't need workers for its factories, and the USA won't need workers for its warehouses. What they will need, though, is highly skilled or scarce labour. We have seen this with the global chip shortage already. The lead time for different products and services can be immense. If Samsung needs more TV builders, they can be trained within a matter of weeks or months. But if you need a precision engineer for microchips, you either have to wait years, or you have to go find them somewhere else. Whatever the job is, the Global North will have a lot of spare capital and infrastructure to attract the best and brightest from all over the planet. Hell, Google could probably give free houses for all its engineers to move to San Francisco. That brain drain is guaranteed to have happened, and it's also guaranteed to accelerate inequality. While some countries might now have proportionally better spreads of resources or less overcrowding, they are likely to maintain their relative position in the global status quo. Over time, though, they will lose a lot of innovative people as well as their young people and likely spiral into economic decline and internal conflict. 
the two-tier economy would persist even with likely cash transfers from wealthier nations. Canada, which is not really an economy, but three natural resource corporations in a trench coat, would probably sink into the ocean. Spreading the wealth is not going to be a function of this post-snap economy. International relations. During this period of time, the wagons will well and truly be circled. A major war is unlikely to occur, as the most aggressive states of the day are generally relying on numerical superiority, which although maintained is offset by a decrease of the technical gap. For example, if you had one air defense system for every 20 enemy jets yesterday, today you have one for every 20. But your enemy doesn't have the 20 pilots good to go. You likely have a couple of years where you could maintain this advantage. So the world powers would try to revert to the status quo while replenishing their militaries. It's likely that NATO would mobilize a large international force under a combined command to ensure the continued dominance of the West. China would likely take this opportunity to set its domestic house in order around space, economic development and demography, and everyone else would probably chill out a bit. Small conflicts will break out between neighbouring countries, either settling old scores or due to economic or political turmoil, but it's not like gunboats are about to cross the Taiwan Strait. After about a year, those countries currently influenced by the US and its allies would likely be stable, given the precursor to those global resettlement narcs is bound to be up and running and enforcing some form of order. The status quo with a few addendums would persist from about 2019 to the blip in 2023. So if we don't get open borders and brotherly love for those five years, that means the nativist disposal of vulnerable migrants after 2023 would would also not happen, right? Nope, that's still happening. After a logical blip. It's already in the MCU canon that once everybody returned, there was a large sense of pretending nothing had happened. Or at the very least, a sense of let's revert to where we were and pick up the pieces later. Aside from the complementary blip logic that is required to safely return everybody and half the ring-tailed lemurs to Earth, there seems to be very little downstream structural effects aside from the quote-unquote migrant issue. In the MCU, the move to repatriate is quite sudden. So I'm sure we can assume that the pressure was immediate. You did have situations where countries like the USA suddenly had an extra 50 million people just living in it without any extra supporting infrastructure. The solution that the global powers decided to implement was concentration camps. Sure, in the MCU they're called refugee camps, but that's not at all what they were. A refugee camp is infrastructure that is built to house refugees. A refugee is a displaced person who has crossed the border and cannot or will not return home to a genuine, due to a genuine fear of persecution. In the MCU, these camps were people being forcibly relocated to be removed from the country. The conditions were so bad that people suffered serious disease outbreaks, even in developed countries. A concentration camp is a camp in which people are forcibly held in harsh conditions without regard to their human rights and due process. So that's what those camps were. For a large portion of the Falcon Winter Soldier, these two Avengers are working for people running concentration camps. At least it gives us a clear barometer. 
Hydra's floating fortress full of guns is bad, but regular authoritarianism and concentration camps are apparently good. A logical migration. Realistic migrations. Under a logical snap-blip scenario, it's highly unlikely that such a large amount of infrastructure for dealing with the migration issue would be needed. It's likely that the majority of highly skilled or highly scarce labour would be accommodated within the domestic economy. It's also probable, however, that there would still be a huge number of people slated for both domestic and international forced resettlement. Areas that are sparsely populated are likely to be earmarked to hold the remaining immigrants in new cities or revitalised cities under some large-scale government works project. For example, places like Alaska, the Dakotas or the Canadian prairies would probably see brand new cities being built and skilled labour being forcibly resettled there. Japan would likely do something similar with areas that had prior experience serious population decline. But all of you listening can imagine just how well this would go, can't you? Forcibly relocating tens if not hundreds of thousands of people to underdeveloped areas that you won't be able to service properly. If you were looking for a breeding ground for extremism, you found it. Especially given the disaffected will likely be a plurality if not a majority wherever you dump them. That's to say nothing of those people you're trying to deport and put in these concentration camps. These people will be legitimately furious at what is occurring, as will all of their political allies within your citizenry. We have seen the amount of controversy surrounding the deportation of illegal migrants worldwide. Now imagine that scaled up to burning down cities levels. Really you're trading one big problem of tens of millions of migrants for two smaller ones, both equally likely to lead to violence. And that might be manageable if you hadn't already pre-ordered the deluxe migrant crisis edition when you took all the economically valuable people from the global south and left their domestic economies to rot. Returning home. Let's take an abstract example for a moment. Say the population of Costa Rica overnight becomes 2.5 million people. Now, you're okay in your primary commodity or consumer goods sectors, 70% of your GDP. The global demand is halved and so has your workforce. Sure, capital investments are now losing money at scale, but it's a, it's a crisis, it's not total collapse. The other 30% of your export economy, though, produces telecommunication, electricity and medical products. Okay, demand might have there too, but again, crisis versus collapse. Within within one year, the top 20% of your workers in this sector get visas for the United States and are gone. So now a $4 billion industry has a dearth of talent that can't be easily replaced, and it stagnates, becomes less profitable as wage pressure and lack of production start to bite. When you include the wage labourers, students and professionals that left, your economic situation looks dire. Over five years, you adjust to the new normal and recover a good bit of your per capita wealth, but you're still very, very far behind, especially compared to these wealthy Western countries. So, 2023 rolls around and Uncle Sam says he's sending 100,000 people back to your country in the next month. That's great news. Your nation will be whole again. Except, you don't get to pick and choose who's coming home. The US government does. They have drained your brain and they're not inclined to give it back. 
Sure, you have some expats returning with fresh capital to energize your economy by starting businesses, but you also have thousands of people who want to work in sectors that are a fraction of their former selves. These groups are far too big to be pushed around and deployed where the market needs them to be. All of a sudden, you now need to rethink your economy and your politics. You need to manage resources, violence and social upheaval on a wartime scale. In an ideal world, you'd receive massive cash transfers from richer nations. But we all know how likely that is and how likely it is to go where it's needed, even if you do get the money. American crony capitalism and the military-industrial complex creating universal basic income in Latin America was not how I or Fidel Castro saw this going, but there you have it. The MCU and Politics As stated in every episode, the spirit of this show is semi-academic, and what that really means is taking a look at how our fictions portray politics and taking them from PG-13 to NC-17. Oftentimes that means pointing out silly pieces of logic in the content and substituting something more realistic or manageable. In this episode, it's a bit difficult not to dump on the MCU. Because, you know, you shouldn't. It's it's designed for a family audience. It's designed to be exciting and make a passable amount of sense. That's why they just put things as awful as concentration camps in it willy-nilly. These issues, were they real? Would have defined a generation in the way that 9-11 did. But for the MCU, it's just another day of mortal peril, whether that's flag smashers or creepy floating aliens. What is something that's worth noticing, though, is how in such a long-running lore arc, and across dozens of hours of content, the macro setting just kind of scoots along. Like, the world wouldn't be irrevocably changed from superheroes, invasions, a superhero civil war, and 50% of all life disappearing. Everything just looks like a slightly more stressed America. Which is the other issue. The use of American political commentary, and a really basic level of extrapolating that for the entire Earth. This was common after 9-11 during the Freedom Fries era, but even more so in the era of Trump politics. Although the level of cringe can be off-putting at times, the general trends highlight the authoritarian tendencies of our current world a bit better than they used to. In terms of the blip and snap, though, these things would likely have gone in a completely different direction. Our superheroes would likely have to make a choice similar to the one that they made in Captain America Civil War. Do they go along with a system they feel is broken, or do they fight back to protect people? The most ironic thing about all this is that apparently everything's fine up until then. The wars, famines, environmental devastation, they're just gravy for decades. I suppose in this sense, Thanos really didn't do anything wrong, or at least he wasn't destroying a functionally ideal situation. All of this fighting, all of these heroics, are apparently an opportunity to reset to a world that's crappy for a large minority of human beings. Now this doesn't always have to be an exposed bit of context, especially in media that's PG, PG-13 levels of insight. But in this case, it's, it's quite clear that even at an elementary school level, or just a passing level, the whole Avengers arc doesn't really put the world to right at all. These people are consistently saving a broken system 
and are supposed to be paragons of moral virtue. When in reality, no matter what happened throughout the entire Avengers arc, the world would remain a complete cluster, and of course, depression among insurance adjusters would reach endemic levels. That's the end of this week's episode. Thanks for listening to The Rambling, and if you like the show, please feel free to give us a review or share amongst your friends. You can find us on Twitter at the underscore GDBS, and remember to keep your hobbies fun and dumb, because that's what they're there for. Bye.